there. It's good to see you guys today, man. Appreciate you being here. We've got a team in Uganda. We've got a short-term team going to Uganda. They're in Istanbul right now. They'll be arriving in Uganda, Lord willing, today, later on today. So I just want to ask you to remember them and pray for them over the course of the next 10 days. They take the gospel to Uganda. And then next Sunday, July 2nd, we're going to take up a special offering. This is just, we're going to put our chest out. Anything we put in there, we're going to use that money to help send kids to camp. We've got a youth camp coming up Sundays on July 9th. We want to provide some scholarships to people that couldn't go to camp otherwise financially. So we're going to take up an offering next Sunday, all right? And uh, anything we give on that day, just going to go to help send the kids to camp, either, either students or, or children's. We've got a children's camp coming up July 24th. So if you'd like to sign your kid up, all right? High school or student, you can do that on our, on our website. Go to our, our pauland.org. And uh, if you need some help, let us know, and we'll try to help you with that financially because we really love to have your kids go, man. Well, it's good to see you today. I want to uh, talk a little bit about motivation today, man. What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Why do you do what you do? What is it that God's called you to do? Why do you keep following Jesus and serving Jesus and following after him? What motivates you to do that. When I was young, first a brand new believer, I went to a church and we called a new guy as a, a staff pastor and he came in there and my wife and I were just going through the line meeting this guy and, and, he, and he just looks at me and he says, hey, I'm looking for somebody to disciple and why don't you be that guy? And at the time, I probably would have went, if I'd have been there by myself, I probably would have said, well, you're talking to the wrong guy. But my wife was right there in the line with me and she looks over at me like this had been an answer to prayer or something. I'm like, which it probably was, and so I was kind of stuck on the spot at that moment, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll meet with you. And this guy just began to disciple me, came alongside of me. We really didn't go through a book or anything. He just began to spend time with me, and it really, really encouraged me and motivated me in my walk with Jesus, all right? So I want to talk just a little bit this morning about what motivates you. And we, we looked at a passage of Scripture last week, uh, known as a, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. One of the greatest sermons ever preached, Jesus preached this sermon, and, and probably it was a, it's, it's found in, in Matthew 5 through 7, but it's probably a compilation of a lot of different teachings of Jesus all put in one spot. But it begins with some motivation. It begins with a reward. It begins with the word blessed. Blessed is he, this is Matthew chapter 5, who is poor in spirit. Blessed is he who, who you know, long, hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Blessed is he who is, is meek. This word blessed, sometimes it's translated happy. Happy is he. But as we talked about last work week, the, the, the word happy at its root has this idea of chance or circumstance. And happiness is actually based on our circumstances, what's going on on the outside of us, right? Like if we're having favorable circumstances. We can be happy about that. But this word blessed goes beyond what's going on on the outside. It's actually something that happens on the inside that only God can do on us. It means to be fully satisfied. It's something that God does on the inside of us so that regardless of what is going on around us, the idea of joy, that we can have joy in the midst of it because it's not based on our circumstances. It's based about what God is doing on the inside of us, right? So Jesus preaches this message, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7 of Matthew, and then he goes out right after that, and he does uh, 8 and 9 and 2 chapters, he does 10 miracles in a row. I said, last week I said there were 9, but there were actually 10, I miscounted. He, he goes out, he, he says it over here, and then he goes and does it over here, 10 miracles in a row. And right in the middle of these 10 miracles, all right, right after the fifth miracle, he gives an example of some person that he changes spiritually. 
It's almost like Jesus just says all this and he's doing all this and then he just stops and says, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about in a guy's life. And he gives us a story about how he motivated this guy to live his life differently. And so that's what I wanna look at this morning. It's in Matthew chapter nine, verse nine. So if you got your Bible, you can open it up. Matthew chapter nine, uh, verse nine. Here, here's the context of it. In, in nine chapter one, a familiar story, uh, Jesus is teaching in, in, in a place called Capernaum in this guy's house. And Jesus is popular, man. This place is packed. This house is packed out. It's like church ought to be every Sunday. You can't get in the front door. You can't get in the windows. The spirit of God, of God is upon Jesus to heal. People are in there. The Pharisees are on the front row checking it out. And uh, there's these, this guy, these four guys that have a friend that's paralyzed. And uh, this guy can't get to Jesus. So these four friends, they get a stretcher. They go to their friend. They put the friend on the stretcher. And these four guys carry this guy to this house because they believe that Jesus can possibly help him. But when they get to the house, it's so packed, they can't get in the front door. And so, you know, this story, they, they, they go up on the roof of the house. They take away the tiles. They dig a hole in the roof. And right while Jesus is preaching, they lower this guy down on ropes right down in front of Jesus. And when Jesus sees this guy, he, 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 doesn't see, he doesn't see their mess, their mess. Somehow he sees their faith and he says to them, uh, you know, your faith has healed you. And then he, he says this, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. They lower this guy down. First, Jesus looks at him, seeing their faith, he said, your son, your sins are forgiven. And this was probably kind of a disappointment for you, one of the four guys, because you were hoping Jesus would heal this guy. But Jesus always looks a little bit deeper, doesn't he? And he says to the guy, your sins are forgiven. Now, when he says that, the Pharisees on the front row, they begin to think to themselves, dude, that's blasphemy because nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, says, let me ask you a question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? So let me ask you a question. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? Now, it's the same to say either one of them. If you say your sins are forgiven, the thing about it is there's no way to prove that. In other words, I could say today, hey, your sins are forgiven. And there'd be no way to prove that I had the authority to forgive your sins. It would just go out there. But if I say, pick up your mat and walk, well, that's a completely different deal because we're going to find out if this guy has any authority or not, right? Now, just on a side note, for Jesus as a son of God, whatever Jesus says always comes true. So for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, all the way over here in Matthew chapter 9, meant that Jesus was basically committed himself to go to the cross. Because as a son of God, when he says your sins are forgiven, even God cannot just forgive a person's sin unless the price of debt has been paid. And so for Jesus to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, he's basically saying, I'm going to pay the price of your sin for you. Jesus committing to the cross all the way over in Matthew chapter 9. But what he says to the Pharisees is, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he says to the guy, stand up and walk. And scripture record for us in Matthew chapter nine, verse seven, that the guy stands up, it says nine, seven says, and the man got up and went home. And the, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. Jesus says, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy immediately stands up and walks out the door. I'm just saying at that moment, if you'd have been there, church would have been over, baby. That's invitation time. 
That would have been the best time for ever give an invitation. You're going to give your life to Jesus right now is the time because obviously it's proved that he had authority to forgive sins when the guy stood up and walked out the door. All right? Chapter 9, verse 9, as Jesus went from there. So this happens. Chapter 9, verse 9, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Whereas one story is about a guy who's physically disabled. Now we have a story about a guy who's spiritually disabled. He sees a guy named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. It's the same exact phraseology. Pick up your mat and walk. The guy got up and walked. Hey, come follow me. The guy got up and began to follow Jesus. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that, that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast, you bunch of slackers? And Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. For no one sews a patch of unshrunk shrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making it tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins, for if they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus says, hey, man, I want you guys to know I came to do something new. Nobody takes new wine and puts it into an old wineskins. Wineskins were made out of goat skin and, and they were pliable when they were first made and new wine always puts off gas. So if you put new wine in a new goat skin, it has the ability to expand. But over time they become brittle and hard. So if you put new wine in an old wineskin, wine when it expands, it'll crack it and both the wine and the wineskin will be lost. Jesus is basically saying, man, I came to do something new. I came to do something new and do it in new people, right? I came to do something new in you. Jesus comes to do something new in you, new creation, new power, new feeling, new presence, new ways. When you look at how Jesus did ministry, Jesus is always doing something new, all right? Ten miracles, every one of those miracles, he did it like in a different way. You can't put Jesus in a box. You can't predict what Jesus is going to do. He's always doing stuff new. So you look at these, these 10 miracles. You know, the first one, he got this leper. Leper comes to him. I know, Jesus, if you're willing, you can heal me. Jesus reached out and touches the guy. Says, be clean. And immediately he's clean. Second miracle, he heals a centurion's Roman. Never even goes to his house. He just gives the word and, and heals him from a distance. He gets up and rebukes the wind and waves. A woman touches the hem of his garment and gets healed. He, he goes to this lady's house and, and this girl's dead. He grabs her by the hand and pulls her up and says, little girl, get up. Jesus is always doing things new, just like he wants to do things new in you, right? God desires to do things new in you because God is always doing something new. It's new wine and new wineskins, right? He didn't come to patch up. He, doesn't, he didn't come to patch up your life. He came to give you a new life. And he didn't come to patch up the old religious system. 
He came to establish a completely new system. It's new wine and new wineskins. So like when I was a kid in my house, uh, nobody in my house, my, my parents never really drank. I never really saw my parents drink. They never had beer around. I saw my dad take a drink one time with some friends, some relatives that came over, but uh, it, they never really drank, which is kind of weird because me and my sisters were really good at it when we were younger, but <laughs> I don't know why it didn't translate. But one time when I was a little kid, my mom comes home and uh, my mom says, uh, hey, we're gonna try something new. We're gonna make some homemade wine. And uh, I've shared this story before, but I don't know why my mom did this. Maybe she read it in Reader's Digest or something. I don't know, but she had this recipe for some homemade wine. And, and I just wanna say about my family growing up, it's not like we were the type of family that would sit around the table and drink a glass of wine. That just wasn't our culture, right? Like we were just, we just drank iced tea, man, just put it in a big jug and set it on the back step and it was sun tea. I don't know how that worked, like three scoops of sugar in there or, or tap water, just drinking tap water. We had this windmill that we got our water from. I don't think it was ever tested. Nobody knows what was in it. It was probably killing us every day. <laughs> just like you, right out of the hose, baby. That's just what we did, right? So my mom comes home, I'm gonna make some wine. I didn't even know what wine was. I'm like, okay, it's an experiment. So she gets this big jar, like a gallon or two gallon jug and she puts a bunch of stuff in it. I don't even know what, grape juice and sugar and yeast. And, but then the weird thing was she puts this balloon on top of it. And she says, okay, what they said was when this thing starts to make wine, this balloon's gonna blow up and when it goes back down, it'll be done. I said, this is gonna be awesome. So she takes this big jar and puts it on top of our refrigerator in the middle of the summer. Just so you know, man, we didn't have any air conditioning in our house. We just had a evaporative air in the, in the living room, which kind of blew quasi cool air, but the top of the refrigerator in the other room, it was hot in there. I'm like, this stuff's gonna go bad. Guess what? It went bad. That's what it does, man. It starts to like ferment and stuff floating in the bottom and foams on top. And I mean, this is like went on for a month. We're watching it. I'm like, man, I don't know about that. And then after about a month, the balloon starts to blow up. And every day the thing would get bigger and bigger and pretty soon we're just like, this thing's gonna pop, man, it's gonna be nasty because whatever's in that jar is nasty right there. <laughs> For like a month, and then and all at once the balloon starts going back down and all at once it gets in there and my mom declares one day, it's ready. <laughs> I'm like, what are we gonna do with it now? She says, we're gonna drink some of it. I was like, no way. <laughs> we're gonna drink that? And so she takes it out and she kind of puts it through a little thing and we've got a little glass of it there and you know my dad comes in there and he's like who's gonna take a drink and all my sisters like we ain't drinking that stuff and then my dad says to me I'll take a drink if you'll take a drink all right now I look back on this now and I see what it was it was a ploy by my parents to get me to drink that stuff thinking once I tasted it I would never do it again right they were wrong but it we're gonna try it <laughs> Not a reverse psychology. So I got this little, we get this little, little, you know, probably in a jelly jar or something. We get some and drank it and it was terrible, <laughs> terrible. But you can see, man, when it, when it fermented, it, it puts off this big gas, blew this whole balloon up. If, if you took new wine and put it in an old wine skin, it's going to blow it up and everything is going to be ruined. Jesus is making a point. Man, I didn't come 
to do it the old way. I'm going to do something new. Man, I'm new wine in new wine skin. Something new in new people. The people like the old, but I came to do something new. And you know what he does? He calls a tax collector to follow him. You probably read right over that. Verse 9, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector. And he said, follow me. And Matthew got up and he called a tax collector. Now, just to know in the time of Jesus, man, ain't nobody like tax collectors. Like if you were a kosher Jew, you hated tax collectors. And, and the reason you didn't like them was because they were like a traitor. They basically turned their back on their own people and collected taxes, but not just like they were collecting taxes. They were collecting taxes for the Romans because the Romans were an occupying force. So they had turned their back on their own people to collect money for the Roman government who everybody hated. So if you were a tax collector, man, just in the law of the Pharisees at the time, you couldn't be a judge. You couldn't be a witness in court. You weren't trustworthy enough. And you were excommunicated from the synagogue. If you were a tax collector, dude, you couldn't even go to church. You couldn't even go. You had no hope, man. You were a tax collector. You were the lowest scum on the earth. And Jesus shows up and calls a tax collector to be one of his followers. So just imagine if you were one of the people in the time of Jesus and you're thinking, okay, what kind of person would God use? Okay. And you would think, well, he would probably use somebody that was trying really hard. He'd probably pick somebody that knew the Bible. He would probably pick somebody that was trying their best to to keep the Old Testament law, some really moral person, somebody that had been doing it for a while. In other words, you would think if God's gonna use somebody, it's kind of exactly the same thing we think. Somebody that's really at it, somebody that's really trying hard, somebody that's really moral, somebody that really knows the Bible. Then Jesus just shows up and chooses a stinking tax collector. I mean, it's the, it's the least likely person it's almost like Jesus chooses the least likely person. I'm choosing a tax collector. Stick it to the man right there, right? There's a verse in the Bible, and this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this power, we have this treasure in a jar of clay. A jar of clay is just, you know, it's the least likely jar that you would use. It's not a cup, it's not been, it's just a jar of clay. It's just, you know, common. But he, but this person says, man, we have this treasure that's been put in something very common so that God might be glorified, that God gets the glory and not the person. So it's almost like God says, I'm going to take the least likely person and I'm going to do the most spectacular thing through them so that I get the glory and not that person. Now, you know who wrote that verse? That's Paul. You know what Paul was? The least likely person. Who would choose Paul to be an apostle? The dude hated Christianity. He put people to death. He was a terrorist for following Jesus. 
And it's like Jesus goes, that's the dude I'm going to use. Why would God do that? Because, because he's the least likely person. So what that means, maybe you're here today. I want to ask you a question. Why not you? Why doesn't God use you? You're like, well, Kurt, I'm kind of old. I've been following Jesus for a while. I've probably done my part, and now it's time to let somebody else do their part. I'm too old. Well, you should tell that to Moses. He was 80 years old when he had his experience at the burning bush, 80 years old. He's just getting started. Or you might say, well, I'm too young. I'm just a teenager, just a middle schooler, just a kid, just in college. How could God really use me to really make an impact on the entire world? Well, I would say, well, maybe you should tell that to David. who was just a teenager when he killed Goliath and set off the greatest revival Israel probably ever seen. Or you might be here today and you might be say, I'm too bad. You don't really know what I've done. You don't know how messed up I really am. I say, well, you know what? Maybe you should tell that to the tax collector. Jesus shows up and dude, he, he calls a tax collector. Come follow me. That's what he says. Come follow me. This is his invitation to you. This is the universal invitation of Jesus to you. Come follow me. It's his invitation to every disciple. Come follow me. It says to Peter, come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Come follow me to the rich young ruler. Come follow me. Come follow me. You know, it's interesting when you read in scripture, he says it all the time. You know what nobody ever says one time? Where are you going, Jesus? Wouldn't that be the first question? Somebody come, hey, come, with, go, come go with me. Where are you going? Nobody ever asked him where. Because at the heart of discipleship, it's not, about, it's not about where, it's about who. It's not about where he's going, it's about who you're following, right? So like you go on a mission trip, this team going to Uganda, uh, Colin's going, Travis Griffith leading it, uh, Ronnie just got back from Uganda. I went to Uganda years ago on a mission trip. If you ever go on a mission trip to another country, what you really need to have is somebody in that country to take care of you when you get there. In other words, you want to show up at the airport and you really want somebody to pick you up. You don't want to have to show up and not know where to go and not know how to speak and not know what to do and be on your own. You really want somebody to pick you up. You want somebody with a little sign that says Kurt on it when you show up at the airport, right? Because if you don't, you're in trouble. And when that person picks you up, you don't really care where they take you because you don't know where you're going anyway. You just want to know that person that I can trust. And if I can trust that person, it doesn't matter where we go, it's who you go with, right? So Levi shows up and says, come follow me. And Jesus begins, and Matthew begins to go with him. And then it says in verse 10 that he throws a banquet at his house and invited a bunch of tax collectors and sinners to come to eat with him and his disciples. So he throws this banquet and all the people show up. So that, you know, why does he do that? He does that so he can introduce his friends to Jesus, right? I want to throw a banquet. I got all my buddies. I want to introduce them to Jesus. Now, when, when Matthew does that, Something in Matthew shifted, his focus shifted because up to that point, being a tax collector, it was really all about him. 
just as a, as a tax collector, like the most vast majority of people in the world, how can I make some money? What's best for me, right? He didn't really care that he had to sell out his own people to collect money for the Roman Empire. The only way you could really make money was the Romans said, you need to collect this much. So you collected that much, but the only way you got paid was if you collected a little bit more. So he was taking advantage of his fellow people, not only to pay the Roman taxes, but to get rich himself. All he really cared about was taking advantage of other people, what was best for him but there's a shift now. He throws a banquet because he wants to introduce his friends to Jesus. It was no longer just about him. Now it was about other people. So there's only one of two ways you can live your life. Everything in your life can be about you. It's my marriage. It's my church. It's my work. It's my pleasure. It's my money. It's gonna be about you. And at some point, that can get a little old. Or you can make it about Jesus. And if you make it about Jesus, at some point it becomes about other people because Jesus is always concerned about other people. And when you make it about Jesus, it'll give you a different motivation. It'll give you a reason to get out of bed in the morning. It's not just about you. It's not just about your marriage. It's not just about what you can get. It's about other people. I read this quote the other day. I saw it in a magazine. It says this, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. There's something about shifting your focus off of yourself and putting it on others that produces a change in your life. And this is what happened in Matthew. Matthew gets called to follow Jesus, and the first thing he does, he begins, to compare, he begins to be concerned about other people. But as they do that, the Pharisees begin to criticize Jesus. He was having this dinner at Matthew's house in verse 10, and in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciple, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Why does your teachers eat with tax? So the Pharisees began to criticize Jesus, and they were upset for a couple of reasons. Number one, they were upset with the authority that Jesus assumed. When he healed that guy, when he says to that first guy that's paralyzed, pick up your, pick up your, your sins are forgiven, right? When he says your sins are forgiven, they begin to criticize him because they said nobody can forgive sins but God alone, Right? This is old wine. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus here knows what they're thinking. He says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, pick up your mat and walk. And the dude stands up and walks out the door. Now, when that guy walked out the door, it put all the Pharisees into a dilemma, just like it should put you into a dilemma. Because Jesus didn't say... When I say pick up your mat, uh, your sins are forgiven, he didn't say God's going to forgive your sins. He said, I'm going to forgive your sins. So Jesus is claiming to have the ability to forgive sin. Jesus is claiming to be God. And I'm just saying if Jesus is God, then you should follow him. You should act like him. You should do what he says. He's worthy to follow. If he's God... That should, you should rearrange your life to follow him. Only one of two things. 
When that guy got up and walked out the door for all the Pharisees, either this guy is God in the flesh or he's not. That's your only two choice. Either he's God in the flesh and I should follow him or he's not and I should forget him. There's no middle ground. They did not like the authority that he assumed because it put them in a bad spot, all right? And secondly, they didn't like the company that he kept, right? I mean, it was a scandal for him to call Matthew, but it was a bigger scandal for him to go and eat with them. Why are you eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, they said, because they're going to, you're gonna be exposed to their sin. And Jesus said, I ain't worried about being exposed to them. I'm trying to expose them to me. Man, it's not the, sick, it's not the healthy that goes to a doctor. It's the sick. Now look, back when we had COVID, remember that? Life-changing event? Somebody's like, oh, you were within six feet of someone for 15 seconds. You got to stay in your bedroom for the next 10 days. Oh, this, this, that, no. I, wasn't, I don't think it, I think it was seven feet for two seconds. I'm not sure I was around him. And then we'd all be mad at people. I'm pretty sure that person's got COVID and he came to church, right? Whole world, just that one moment when our whole world went crazy for a year or so. But you know what nobody ever criticized anybody for? Going to the doctor, because, I mean, that's what a doctor does. You can't criticize a doctor for being around sick people. That's what they do, <laughs> right? It's like you can't criticize a plumber for having to clean out your sewer. That's just, you can't criticize a mechanic for working on broken down cars. Jesus says, hey, man, why are you hanging out with a bunch of sinners? It's actually good news. Because that's what I came to do. If you got a doctor that's not hanging around terminally ill people, you don't really have a good doctor. Aren't you glad we got a savior that wants to hang out with people like us? Aren't you glad that Jesus cares about you? Aren't you glad that he's a great savior that the world has seen and he's hanging out with the tax? What else would you expect a savior to do except to hang out with sinners, right? Of course he would call a sinner. And you know what else about Jesus, dude? He loved Matthew before he transformed him. He loved him when he was a sinner. We like people once they get all cleaned up, act like they should. Not Jesus, man. He loved Matthew before he got transformed because he's the ultimate physician. He's the ultimate doctor. You just look at it, man. The Pharisees, Ambrose always being negative. Jesus always being positive. So, you know, you just look at it. What are the Pharisees, man? They're, the Pharisees are like, okay, uh, you're a tax collector. Dude, Matthew, you're a tax collector. You can't even worship in the temple. What does Jesus say? Man, boldly come before my throne of grace. You're a tax collector? You come follow me and you can boldly come before my throne of grace right into my very presence. You know, the Pharisees, where they say, man, you're a tax collector. You're going to hell for sure. What does Jesus say? You're a tax collector. You come follow me, man. And one day you'll be with me in paradise. I go to prepare a place for you. 
Or you got, the, you got the Pharisees saying, you're a tax collector. You can't be used by God. And what do you got Jesus saying? Jesus saying, you're a tax collector. You should come follow me. Because I'll use your past and I'll use your abilities to do something that you can never even imagine that you even thought possible to fill the kingdom of God in a way that's going to be greater than anything can imagine. You got the Pharisees, man. They're always trying to tear it down. And you got Jesus because you know what? Matthew, man, here's Matthew. This dude's a tax collector. Being a tax collector, you know what that meant he could do? Dude, he could write. You know what the literacy rate of in the time of Jesus one to three percent. That means probably the only dude in town that could write was Matthew. Jesus says, man, you come follow me. I'm going to use you to do something. They're still going to be reading about 2,000 years from now. I'm going to use you to reach more people than all the Pharisees ever did combined. I'm going to use you in the most incredible way possible. I'm going to have you write a book that's going to be the greatest book, best read book in the history of the world. I just want to know, man, about you. What hidden talent do you have? What do you have that you never even thought God could use it to further his kingdom because you've never given it to him? And Matthew's a guy sitting at a tax collector booth. And Jesus just comes up one day. I'm going to ask the band to come on out. Uh, Jesus comes up one day, and here's what he says. Follow me. Follow me. That's it. He could have said, dude, I'm busy. He could have said, that sounds like a lot. He could have said, I don't know you that well. He could have said, that sounds like a risk. He could have missed it. Think about what he would have missed. The blind people that were able to see deaf people that were able to hear, paralyzed people that were able to walk, 5,000 people being fed, the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, writing the book of Matthew. I mean, his whole entire life changed with one invitation. And my question for you this morning is, why not you? Why not you? Why not you? Why not you just follow Jesus and let Jesus do what he wants to do with what you got, that he might be glorified in a way that you never could imagine. Why not? Why not you? We pray. Father, I pray for your spirit speak to us. Even during this last song, Father, you'd meet with us in this place. There might be some people in this room that would answer the call just to follow you wherever that might take them, wherever it goes, that they just might by faith follow you, that you'd be glorified through them, I pray.